one way that emphasises just the importance about our faith. Kay has already spoken um, about the opportunity we had last week to share uh, with Dorothy Kay's mum about eternal things. And there is a huge ignorance in church, not just the one that Dorothy goes to, but in, in people that actually don't understand what this is all about. Can I just clarify, it's not about today. It's not about Sunday. You're here as a, a corporate body to worship God, but Sunday won't get you through. It's your daily walk, your daily feeding of yourself, which will actually get you through the difficult times. And here's a prophecy. The difficult times will come. In one way or another, they come. Because that's the world we're in. in. And um, it's important as we look once again at the Word of God, that we realise this just isn't information. It's not just a story that may or may not have happened. This writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing this for a purpose. And he wants us all to know that. And he wants us to take something away that actually will change us. You are, and I am, a working progress. But there is an, an element of what we do to do alongside the work that he does. And it, and it shocked me last week with, with Kay's mum. You know, I, I, there was an opportunity and I just threw a question out there and I thought, let's see where this goes. It's not easy talking to people about death. But it's something that actually we all face. We all experience. And so because she's a believer and I asked the questions, I thought, well, and we talked on the way home and and, and in some way, it's an honour, a privilege. But you know what? It holds no fear for anyone that's a believer. Does it? Do we believe it? Right, let's just... We're going to look at David's life again. And he's nearly, and he will today, be what I would say is David's low point. And sometimes you have to hit bottom before you start travelling back up again. There's a few of us been to the bottom. Maybe somewhere on the way down. But for David, he's going to get to the place where God needs him to be. And that sounds harsh. But he's going to get David to the place where David will re realise, actually David, just because I have called you to be my king, and the greatest leader bar Jesus for Israel, actually it's none of you. You bring very little to the equation, David. You bring something, but you bring very little. But God brings everything. And so we're going to see him now. Last week, he was stood next to a rock called Izel. Anyone remember what that stood for in Hebrew? Please? What is the rock that he was stood next to? Oh, and you can see the great... Yeah, the rock that showeth the way. And you and I, the point being, which you forgot, most of you, until Sunday, you're forgiven, Kenneth. You're forgiven. The rock that showeth the way, and the point being is, look, we're stood next to our rock. You and I. And he has a direction for our life. And I pointed out last week that actually, as Jonathan took those arrows, and he, and he was firing them, directing David's life, in David's heart, I'm sure he was saying, Lord, 
let them fall short. If they fall short, it means Saul's not after me. I can return back to my life. I can return back to my wife, my status in the community and everything. And then suddenly this arrow would fly over his head. And that's Jonathan's explanation was this. It's not Jonathan firing the arrow. It's God directing his life. And David had to turn around and begin moving in the direction that God was taking him. Sometimes God does that to his children. He'll turn you around and say, right, now, start following me properly. So let's, what, let's look what happens to our dear friend David. The next verse says this, David went to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why are you? Ahimelech. The high priest of that of of um, of that day, if you like, and he's ministering in the tabernacle. And we're going to look at the tabernacle. I'm going to take the opportunity because I know there'll be some in the room that don't understand what what is actually happening, and so we're going to spend a little time looking at the tabernacle. But here's this priest. He sees David, who's the commander of the the army, and he knows something's wrong, and he's frightened. He knows the, he must know the trouble between uh, David and Saul, and he knows if he gets this wrong, then Saul will have his head. Let me spoil the ending. That's exactly what happens. David's choices result in the 85 priests being killed. It results in men, women and children being killed because of this action. And it's an action that actually... Jesus himself will, will tell this story in the Gospels. It really did happen. Sometimes, when we are not following God's direction, the consequences can be horrendous. Did you get that? If we, if we are determined to go our own way, then we actually influence what God will do, what God will not do, and those consequences can be borne by... By other people. It's good to have the fan club in the room. Right. Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now David, last week, lied. There are some lies in the Bible. Let me just say this to you. That's not God telling David to lie. That is David making a decision to lie. God will work within those stories, but actually... The second one comes easier than the first. And that's the same for all of us. If, if our actions are sinful, the first time you do it, it's a big deal. You will carry on doing it. And if you carry on doing it, it gets easier and it gets easier and easier. So David comes up with this story. David answered to Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them a certain place. Absolute codswallop, isn't it? You know this story. He doesn't. David's on the run from Saul, and he's just told a load of porkies. We do that when we're running out of God's presence. All of us in this room are capable of doing that. When we're running away. We'll tell people what they want to hear. Let's have a look. Now then, what have you got to hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. He's, 
he's left in such a hurry, he's not got any food with him. He is very much afraid for his life. But the priest answered to David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Well, if David's on a mission, and he's got his band of of, um, soldiers with him, and they're going out to fight, one of the rules to keep God on your side in those days was that actually you didn't have relations with women. We see that comes back in uh, Uriah. When Uriah comes back from the battlefront, he will not sleep with Bathsheba. It's because of that. They believe that God um, and the instructions from the Old Testament that actually they weren't to to sleep with with their wives. They were to uh, be set apart. That's what the word consecrated means. Set apart unto God. So what will David do now? David replied, indeed, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever we set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Straightforward. Right. This is the bit Jesus quotes. And we need to look at a tabernacle to understand the significance of what is about to happen. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no ordinary bread, or no bread there except the bread of presence, that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. What then does the bread represent? Let's, can we put the first picture up? It's so, so beautiful what, what we see here. That's a good holiday snap. It's coming. Yep, do the one. Are we getting it? Bit of a drag. Here we go. Look, can you see that? That is supposed to be a. T- you see the the outline there. And the tent was was um, when God took the nation out of Israel. And bear with me if you if you know all this, but. There are some in the room that don't. When God took his nation out, out of Egypt, sorry, then for them to get to know God, he said he set up a system of worship. He knew that they would sin. God always knows that we're going to sin and, and not keep the right standard. Therefore, he gave them a way of coming into his presence. Thank you. Let me just show this, this room. This is called the holy place inside the tent. This is the place. Can you see that line there? That line is what? The curtain. Some of you will be familiar with what I'm going to do. This is the table where the bread that was given to David actually would have sat. And every week, every Sabbath, the priest would take in 12 loaves of bread and he would put the bread on that table, and it symbolises God's provision. Do you realise that sometimes we might be a million miles from God, but he's still providing for us? You just think about that for a moment, that actually you might not have given God any thought whatsoever, but he loves us, 
and his provision is evident. That's why there was 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes. And this bread, after it had been stood there for a week, or sat there for a week, the priests were allowed to eat that bread. The priests, know that, notice that, were allowed to eat the bread in a holy place. And then that, that ritual would continue. And the Pharisees in the New Testament challenged Jesus about religiosity. And sometimes we make things so complicated. And Jesus just said, look, do you not know that story where David was given the bread? Because actually man's needs trump religion. Just do the right thing. That's what God wants us to do. Just do the right thing. But I want to look at that because for David... That's the system. But what about us? Does that still exist? Well, of course it doesn't. It, it was a tent that they took that they took into the nation. And eventually the temple was built and a similar system was set up in place. And some of you have, have said that that's a curtain. And so once a year, what would happen is the high priest, he would go in there and in here. And when he was in that place, when he was in that place, he was meeting, he was entering God's presence. Meeting with God. And I think sometimes one of the problems that we have in church is we make him a bit familiar. They didn't have that problem because that threshold, you had bells around the clothes that you're wearing and the idea was the people on the other side of the curtain would hear the bells jingling as you ministered around that that um in that holy of holies you also had a rope tied to your leg and if your sacrifice was not acceptable you died you came into god's presence and you dropped down dead now that would get your attention wouldn't it if i said to you next sunday we're coming to church and all of you, if you've not spent at least seven hours in prayer, by the time you come next week, you're going to drop down dead. How would that go down? It's not a word. Look, it's an illustration. How would that sit with you? Do you think you'd do the seven hours? <laughs> do you know, that might be the safer option. Let me ask you a question, though. And we're going to look at the book of Hebrews, which is going to explain this. Let, let me ask you a question. Have you been in God's presence today? I have. And I don't just mean because it's a Sunday and I know that I'm going to be speaking. But do you realise what a privilege it is? Because this curtain at the cross, of course, was removed. It was torn. When was the last time you, you don't need to tell me, but in your heart, when was the last time you actually crossed that threshold and went into his presence? should scare you a little bit. But what a privilege for his children. And, and privilege is the right word, really. What an honour that he wants us to do that. And, and not do it light-hearted. Let me tell you something. If you go into that place, figuratively speaking, you're different. You just can't remain the same. You might go in and you might be weighed down with the cares of the world. You might be struggling in an area. You, you might have all sorts of issues. 
But let me assure you, and he wants us to do this, that when we go into his presence, maybe on your knees before God, just you, not, not lots of people, just you, things change. Maybe the thing that you're struggling with hasn't changed. Maybe the issues haven't changed, but you will change. How strange that we don't do this on a regular basis. When I discovered this, I'd been a Christian eight years. I remember it blew me away. Eight years. And I'd read the Bible, and I'd been to church, and all those things. And then I, I discovered, what, I can do that? Not the guy with the mic? Not someone who's been to Bible college? Little old me, little sinful me, can come before my God that close. Let me tell you something. I know God lives within me. That's, that's not what I'm saying here. I mean, actually, you going into his presence before God. Isn't that one? Do you think that's wonderful? Do you want to try it? Just when you're alone, on your knees, talking to him, thanking him, praising him. And I don't mean like two minutes. Just try it for a while and just stay there and, and let him minister to your heart. Let him show you how much he loves you. And then build it into your day, every day. And then when those storms come, let me tell you what actually happens. You don't go into his presence when the storm comes. You're already there. It's just part of who you are. Let me show you what Hebrew, the book of Hebrews says on the subject. You know, I, I heard Kay singing this morning as, as we were getting ready to come to church. And she's singing about the tabernacle. And I said to her, I'm going to talk about that this morning. And I thought, God, you just confirm so much so readily. Let's look what the writer of Hebrews says. Now the first covenant, that's the contract for want of a better word, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. That's what I've just shown you. A tabernacle was set up, a tent, in its first room with a lampstand on the table with its consecrated bread. There's our bread. This was called the holy place. The place where only the priests could go. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. That's where I want you to go. The most holy place. which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. He's outlining what would be familiar to the Jewish readers. Yep. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. And notice this, and never without blood. You can only come into God's presence through the blood of Jesus. They used as a shadow and as an illustration of what was to come, they used animal sacrifice. And they killed lots of animals, and the blood flowed, because listen, our sins are that serious. We sin and we sometimes think, well, it's only this, it's only that, or whatever. Actually, to God, he's a holy God. Holy. And he must punish sin. I'm so glad that actually we can come before him through Jesus' blood. Because one day, when we do stand before him, you either stand before him 
in your own righteousness, in your own standing, in your own good works, or you stand under the blood of Jesus. And when Kirsty became a Christian on, what was it, 11 o'clock on Friday? When Kirsty became a Christian, that's what it was about, accepting that the blood of Christ gave her entry into God's presence. Now, it's down to you now whether or not you will exercise that right as a child of God. So look, the priest, the high priest, he was a sinner, so he had to offer a sacrifice for himself and then for the sins of the people. Move it on, Graham, please. The Holy Spirit was showing by this way that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. For the Old Testament believers, that's what they actually had to do. But notice this. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. How could the blood of animals cleanse me? That's why the, the sacrifice was repeated time after time. But Christ's sacrifice was endorsed by God. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. You, are, you and I are in the new order. And here we are. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of creation. Hear what I'm saying. If he did all that for us, how sad that we don't take advantage of it. How really sad that the thing that they would have longed to be able to do Little ordinary you and me can come into God's presence. I want to I, I get hold of you and strangle you in love and pound your head and, until I know in your eyes that you've understood what I'm trying to say. Don't, don't let my weakness with language interfere with you not grasping this. Grasp it with both hands and say, I'm a child of God. And I'm coming into his presence. It will change you. It will. Okay, let's go back to David. Let's flip out of this. And That's the bread that he took. Symbolising God's provision. Let's pick up the story and see what he does next. Poor old David. So the priest gave him the consecrated, the set-apart bread... For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Every seven days. Verse 7. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg. Doeg the Edomite. Sounds like a cast out of something, like some sinister movie. You're going to meet this character. It's all right, all right work. Doeg the Edomite, or Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. He just happens to be there. David sees him and he knows that there's, a, there's trouble afoot. David said to Ahimelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand, for I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. He's lying. And God's still feeding him. He's lying. Isn't it funny? He's on the run. He's got no provision. He's got no weapons to defend himself. And the last thing in David's mind is God. The last thing in his mind is God. 
Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it. For there is no other except it here. And look at David's comment here. And David said, There's none like it. Well, it didn't do Goliath any good, did it? Think about it. Hang on. Big sword, big guy, defeated him with a pebble. What do you want the sword for? Do you get the do you join the dots up? Think about it, right? What, David is walking by sight. He's forgot his God. When he was when he was about seventeen and he stood before the giant and he slew him. If you read in chapter seventeen, it, it, there was no fear in David. He had a vertical relationship. He, he had a relationship with God, which he knew would keep him safe. Where's that now? Where's it gone? Saul's been chasing him, throwing spears at him. His wife's had to lure him out of a window. People are on his, on his case. His world's falling apart. I know what I'll do. I'll pick up a junk Goliath sword. That'll work, won't it? Really? You know, we do the same. Life gets really difficult, and the first thing that goes out the window is God. We pick up and we say, right, okay, I'll manage this myself. And you never will. That's the time, listen, to get into his presence again. To come before him and say, look, and we'll get there with David. God, you know, you know everything. You're, nothing can happen that you don't allow to happen. And these are scary times for all of us. But they're so true. There's none like it, give it to me. And David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Well, that's really wise. What's wrong with that statement? It's a Philistine, and where does Goliath come from? Gath. Fancy going there with Goliath's sword, right? And remember the song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So you're going to march into a hostile territory with a Goliath's sword, which everyone knows of, and they know about you. What about all the widows and the friends of those that David has killed? He's lost the plot. Don't you think? Certainly not God, is it? He's lost the plot. He's forgot who he was. He's forgot the anointing. He's forgot Samuel. He's forgot all the provision of God. And we can do the same. We can do the same. Or we can choose not to. Alright, so he's arrived at Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Well, actually it is. They know. It's David who's forgot. It's funny sometimes. Have you been around non-believers and then done something wrong? And they go, you can't do that. You're a Christian. And you think, oh, pants. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it struck a chord with a few of you in the room. It's funny how non-believers know who we are. And we forget who we are sometimes. Let's not forget. Let's remind each other who we are. Some of you on my phone appear as Bishop Torrens. You know she's a bishop. Saint Wendy. Ah, yes. Reappearing Kenneth, because he's putting weight on. Yeah, sorry, we won't, that's not part of the preach, Ken. <laughs> Look, 
Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? I would suggest, David, you've made a little bit of a faux pas here. You're in the wrong area, and naturally, you're up the creek without a paddle. David took these words to heart. And this is the first time. And greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Up until that time, David's never been afraid. The writer's not said anything about him being afraid. But now, he's really out on a limb. Does that mean God's going to desert him? Does that mean God's going to say, Oh, look, I never knew that was going to happen. I never knew you were going to start behaving like that, David. I know, I'll let you get slaughtered by them and I'll find another king. Aren't you glad of God's grace when you and I mess up big style? Oh, is it just me that's messed up big style? Oh, yeah, thank you, Greb. I'm glad that in my mistakes, God didn't wash his hands of me. Isn't that what grace is? Isn't that what it means to love someone, to care for them, to provide for them? Of course, God wants him out of the place. And so David comes up with a master plan. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his salavia run down his beard. He's the king of Israel, behaving insane, scratching the doorposts and getting spit in his beard. That's God honouring, isn't it, David? Actually, the other king of Israel, Saul, was the one that was insane and behaved that way. But in that culture, in that day, before grow, in that culture before grow, actually those that had mental illness were always left alone. They were respected and they weren't punished. And so that's what David's trying to do. He's getting himself out. How do the messes in? Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? He's just crazy. He's lost the plot. Do I lack madman that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And there we go, look. Life gets a little bit better. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Adullam. I love what God is doing. There are a time, or there are times in our lives when God wants you and I alone with him. And we all have to put some cave time in. You can't go with someone else. There are just times when it's you and him. This is the hinge now for the rest of David's life. He will now begin to experience his relationship back with God. Everything else has gone. He's in a cave. It's a huge cave. They know where this is in Israel. It's got different chambers, different levels. And the entrance is about seven feet wide, apparently. And it could hold thousands of people. But David's there alone. What do you think is going through his mind? What do you think David's thinking about? That blank look that you give me on every Sunday morning. Come on. 
What's going to happen to me? That's not that's not unreasonable, is it? Ah, now then. Thank you, Graham. You know what? Sometimes we have to get to a place all the stuff is sort of removed that out the way, the stuff that's got in the way. And then we remember, we, we, we have these words that were spoken in due season into our lives. We, you know, you, you and I live in instant worlds, don't we? And if someone says something, we think, well, that's got to happen tomorrow. Or even today, preferably. But David will spend ten years on the run. He will visit this cave many times. But I think what he's learning is this. That actually God's word will come true. If I do my part, and, and we look back in life, David must, I think, have looked back and thought, hmm, Saul threw a spear at me. But it didn't hit me. Saul threw another spear, but it didn't hit me. Saul sent men to capture me while I was at home, and, and I escaped. Actually, Saul sent people when I, was, when I was at Samuel's, and actually God himself made them incapable of catching me. Why do I run? Why do I fear for my life when God's got it so close? And what about that promise when that old guy came and poured oil over my head and said, you are the king of Israel? That hasn't changed. All these externals, they're just externals. But actually, I'm still who you called me to be. I think, and I know, by the way, because David starts to write. And he lets us a little insight into his heart. We're going to look at one of the Psalms that he wrote. The semicolon doesn't do it justice, really, because there, might, there must have been a time delay between what happens there. He's in the cave, he's escaped. And then when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Yeah, well, the father, his father and his brothers could have been taken hostage by Saul, could have been executed by Saul. So I can understand why they would go to him, but they're not the only ones who come to him. Verse 2, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. It sounds like church. When I read that, I thought, yeah, let me explain what this is like. You know when you, when you talk about Jesus, our Saviour, to people who don't need anything, or think they don't need anything, they're the hard ones to, to tell. But actually you get someone who's in this situation and they'll hear. It's always been the case, you know. In distress, yeah, in this world you'll know trouble. In this world, you will experience difficulty. And those people sometimes are ready to come to the Saviour. Just as they did there. They saw David as their Saviour. Everyone who's in debt, well, not so much debt as in debt as we understand, but they're actually working and uh, the interest rate that's been put on them, their life just seems swamped with everything. As though life is out of control. And it's the third one I love. And everyone who's discontented. If you look up the original language in that, that means bitterness of soul. It means that you've been squeezed and pummeled and pushed. Tried to fit into something that's not you. 
And life will do that. Sometimes life will do it when we've made the decisions. And sometimes, and I know this from my own experience, sometimes other people's decisions are what makes you discontented. But what a great time to discover a saviour. What a really special time when you get to that point where you know you can't do it. That's the time it starts to rise. Isn't that beautiful? So he becomes captain over them and now there were about 400 men with him. And we leave Samuel, before we look at the psalm for a few minutes, with the next verse. Look what David discovers. Oh, he discovers nothing. <laughs> Can we have verse 3? No, not the psalm. I need, I need to finish 1 Samuel or 21 verse 3. Move on, Graham, please. Flick through. Are you tired, Ken? You want a little rest? Well, I'd sit on your knee for a little while. And we get here. Okay. No need to bounce me, mate. I'll be sick. There should be one more verse. Okay, that's too much information for the room. And David went from there to Mispath of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with me until I know what God will do for me. At last, David, you've joined the dots. Until I know what God will do for me. Not an instant answer, not a text message from God saying everything's all right. Not a telex or an email. Actually, David, this is going to be a while. I need you in that cave, reaching out to me, being totally 100% dependent on me, because actually you are my anointed king, but you are not yet the king I need you to be. And I pointed out last week, 3,000 years ago this story, and David would have no comprehension about us studying it. But God had a plan and a purpose and he needed this to happen. And it's the same with everyone in this room. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a calling. Your own calling. And who knows what God will do with a life surrendered to him? Who knows? Dare we believe it? If you dare, I challenge you. You get before God. You thank him for the access into his presence. And you get on your knees and you communicate with God. Let me show you one lesson or two lessons that David learned in the cave. Can we go to the psalm now, please? He writes so many of these when he's in difficulty. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid. Remember, I pointed out that was the first time the Bible records David being afraid. Not afraid of the giant. Afraid when he was in the wrong place amongst the Philistines. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. What do you do when you're afraid? How do you make that decision? Do you want to know how? 
Is it just me? I'll tell you anyway. You make a decision. Actually, make a decision outside of the event. When you're in it, it's scary. Make a decision before the event happens. And say this. No matter what. Right? No matter what. Don't be superstitious. No matter what, I'm putting my trust in God. That's easy, you see, if you spent time in his presence. If you've been on your knees in the Holy of Holies, no-brainer. No-brainer. If your world collapses around you, and then you, you just read a psalm in a book, you think, well, that's all right for you, David. Well, what about you? Move it on, ground. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Well, actually, nothing. No one can do anything to you that God doesn't allow. He is sovereign. All day long they twist my words, all their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Move on. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. And in your anger, God, bring the nations down. I want to end on verse 8. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Hmm. The NLT is a great translation on that passage. Do you know what it says? It says that God bottles up your tears. Think about that. That God, that God has a jar somewhere in heaven with my tears. Now, given the fact that I cry at things like sound of music and dancing and things like that, it's a big jar, isn't it? Well, I do. I'm a bit of a weeper. I'm a Bambi, yeah. Yeah, well, I cry at Bambi. But, but look, there have been times in my life when life has kicked me in the teeth. And, and I've cried. I've actually been on the floor sobbing my heart out, crying out to God, actually crying out to four walls. It didn't feel like God at all. But then I come across this and I look at David's life and I, I see what David discovered in a cave. That actually, God, you were there all along. You know that famous picture where there's the footprints on the sand? It's this, isn't it? You know, when life is really difficult and, and it's so hard and you just think, I can't go another step. And then you look back and actually it was God all the time carrying you. You haven't been walking for ages. You've just been existing. This is how close he is. Every tear that you have shed, he knows about. Every tear that you will shed, he knows about. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he bother doing that? Absolutely. That's the only explanation that fits the whole thing. The question then is, what do we do with that knowledge? What do you and I do with that knowledge? What does it look like in your life that a God bottles your tears up? I, I hope some of them are tears of joy. But I suspect the other bottle is a bit bigger. <laughs> Can we say amen? Can I challenge you? Even today, to, to say, make that decision. Make it part of, of, of your walk to come into his presence on a regular basis. And not just like two minutes. 
Go before him alone. Go before him. Welcome him. Talk to him. Pour your heart out to him. Tell him you love him. 